Welcome to the first of Under Our Feet Season 1's bonus episodes. In Season 1, which I recommend going back and listening to if you haven't already and you're getting to this episode as your first step, but in Season 1 we explored the deep history of the state of Wisconsin. It's a story that goes back almost two billion years. We got all the way from that through the last glaciation, which ended about 14,000 years ago. But geology doesn't stop at some point back in the past. The processes that shaped our planet are still ongoing today. This is true even in the relatively stable mid-continent of North America. Especially, water continues to shape the landscape here, and the climate continues to change, though at a much faster rate than it might have in the geologic past. So now, we're diving into those processes that are still shaping the landscape. Up first, erosion on the shores of the Great Lakes. But first, take a second to rate or review the podcast. Also, take a moment to tell a friend. Go ahead, you can do it right now. Send someone a message telling them they should check out Under Our Feet. Now's a good time. I can wait. Also, thanks to our two most recent supporters on Patreon, Erica Cotton and Carol Grilk. You too can financially support the work here we do at Under Our Feet. There's a link at uofpod.org. And on Patreon, you can get cool benefits like member-exclusive updates, bumper stickers, t-shirts, shoutouts on the show, and the chance to vote on which Wisconsin environmental nonprofit you want to send 10% of the show's proceeds to. In March 22, we sent 10% to Clean Wisconsin. Again, the link is at uofpod.org. Look for the Patreon button. Now that that's all out of the way, welcome to Under Our Feet, where we tell the stories of the geologic forces and events that shape the world around us. This is the season one bonus series, Current Events in Wisconsin's Geology. series is the idea that we live in an ever-evolving, ever-changing Earth. We are a part of this Earth system, and in addition to understanding how we fit into the context of the deep history of the planet, we also need to understand how it continues to change, and how its history is being made right now. Because humans have become agents of geologic scale change, to wield that power responsibly, it's crucial to understand it. So first, we're going to learn more about how the shores of Lake Michigan erode and change. I spoke to a colleague of mine, a fellow PhD student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who's getting her doctorate studying this very issue. Well, Chelsea, good to talk to you. I was wondering if you could introduce yourself and and talk a little bit about, about what you do. Sure. Yeah. So my name is Chelsea Volpano. I'm a PhD student at UW-Madison in the Department of Geosciences, and I study coastal erosion on the Great Lakes, sediment transport, all the different processes that lead to like beach erosion and stuff like that. So I uh, grew up in Wisconsin near the Port Washington area, so southeastern Wisconsin, and I got to hang out on these beaches a lot when I was a kid. And so it's been really great to get a chance to look a little closer at the processes that control the beaches. Do you, do you trace any inspiration from that? Or like, how did you end up studying geology? I mean, I always really appreciated having these landforms nearby, like especially some of the bluffs can get up to, you know, 300 feet high. 
And so they're really impressive. And I always thought they were amazing, but I never took earth science um, in high school. And then I did two years at UW Sheboygan, which is a two-year institution, just got all my gen eds out of the way, still didn't touch geology and then transferred in thinking I was going to do environmental science um, at UW Milwaukee. Took one geology class, Geo 100, and I had a great instructor and I just changed my whole path there. I declared my major and then um, started working with the geologic survey when I was an undergrad. That's the Wisconsin Geologic and Natural History Survey. And they had some projects that related to coastal erosion. You're from Wisconsin. You've worked in Wisconsin. You're studying a landform that's, that's pretty unique to Wisconsin, I guess, or also Michigan as well. But how do you sort of see the landscape of Wisconsin and its change as being, I don't know, something that's worth studying and considering and like it's become a big part of your life? Yeah, that's, I think, a really interesting question because growing up near Lake Michigan, even being so close, there wasn't a big emphasis on the coastal processes, like even living so close, I can't say that it was ever brought into the forefront of my mind until I started researching them. But once you start researching them or getting to know a little bit more about the Great Lakes, I think it's really surprising the scale of the processes that do go on, like the the extent of some of the storms, the similarity to a lot of ocean processes, and just the amount of people that live along the Great Lakes. I mean, that's a huge you know, it's the United States fourth coast. I think they include the East West and the Gulf Coast. And so we're the fourth coast. And I, I think when you start thinking about the amount of people that are impacted by these different processes, it really helps me at least to think, well, you know, I'm doing something important. Awesome. So you mentioned the bluffs getting up to like 300 feet high. Where in Wisconsin do you work? And I guess I'll add to that. What do what what do the coastlines that you're looking like work? What, what do they look like? Um, what what variations do you see? Yeah. So um, I work on it's the west coast of Lake Michigan, so the eastern side of Wisconsin. And we talked about in your one of your previous episodes the glacial geology and the deposits, and a lot of the deposits I study or the coastlines that I study are glacial deposits. So there are these really big accumulations of glacial sediment and they start off pretty low. These bluffs start off low in the Southern part of the state around Racine and Kenosha. And then they kind of dip in and out. So you've got some beach areas in between that where you have really developed uh, dune systems, sandy dunes. And then once you start going North of like Sheboygan up into Kiwani, some of Zaki County have these really impressive clay bluffs. So you're working on these these sediment bluffs, which I guess would be differentiated from some of the ones we've talked about earlier, which were like the, the Paleozoic sediment, the, the Niagara escarpment of the Door Peninsula. So that's another kind of bluff that's different than what, what you're thinking about, correct? Exactly. Yeah. So there's consolidated bluffs, which means the sediments has been smushed into a rock, like a hard rock. And then you have unconsolidated bluffs, which are sediment is still loose. It basically looks like if you were to dig a pit in your backyard and you have that steep face, that's what the bluffs look like. Awesome. So then I guess like my question for you then is what, what's your 
question? What are you trying to figure out? Like, is it a rate thing or like what different processes affect erosion? I wonder if you could lay that out a little bit. Yeah, so my research really deals a lot with the impacts of changing lake levels. So to kind of take a step back, the Great Lakes have these long-term water level fluctuations. And we have a seasonal record of this for about a hundred years, or we have records of this for about a hundred years. And they go, you know, up or down by as much as three feet or a meter. And we have the long-term average, but they're always fluctuating around that long-term average. And so the question is how do those fluctuations affect how the sediment gets moved around in the state? Some people might know there's a lot of coastal erosion that is going on in the Great Lakes right now. There's a lot of houses that have been, you know, getting pushed in or falling in. Their backyards have been being eaten up um, by some of the bigger storms. And so my question is, when we have these lake level fluctuations, how does the shoreline respond at different times? So when you have a really wide beach, when the lake levels are low, what happens to all that sediment when the lake levels raise up? Um, does it end up getting moved offshore a little bit into these sandbars like in storage, or does it end up getting pushed out further into deeper water where we can't necessarily get that sediment back into the system? Okay, cool. So then how, how do you go about figuring answers to these questions? And so I guess one way of phrasing that is uh, if you're going to one of these coastlines to collect data, what do you do? And what is it? What does a day of work in the field look like for you? Yeah, I have some pretty fun toys. We use drones a lot for our onshore surveys. And what we do is we send our drone up, we have it make like a lawnmower pattern across the site that we're studying. And it takes pictures from all these different angles. And with that suite of pictures, we're able to reconstruct a 3D geometry of the landscape. It's called structure from motion. So it's a technique that can get really high resolution elevation models like you might see in Google Earth or something like that. Um, so that's the onshore component. And then we also have this little remote control boat. It just looks like a little catamaran and it's got an echo sounder, um, like a sonar device on it that pings down to the depth of the lake. And so we can get uh, between the drone and the boat surveys, we can get this kind of continuous profile of the lake um, from the beach to the offshore. So, and how is that different than what, like what would someone have done before drones were, or had people even thought about how to solve these questions, I guess? Yeah, so before drones, there was a lot of uh, people walking around with really tall sticks and taking measurements that way. Um, you know, having some baseline level and then measuring, you know, where the height of the stick lands at, on that baseline at different points up the beach. And then we got into a little more sophisticated methods with GPS. So they were still doing what are called transect surveys where you're just taking a few steps, taking a measurement. And along this line, you take a bunch of repeated measurements. And we still use GPS with all of our drone and boat technology. It's just a little more um, automated, a little more user-friendly for sure. So we can get a lot more resolution with these types of surveys. Yeah, I was gonna say it, it sounds like the resolution has increased sort of stepwise from like the, the amount of time it takes to do a survey measurement manually with a pole versus take the GPS measurement versus fly a drone over it. it sounds like you get a lot more data a lot more quickly. Yeah, and so there's been a lot of problems 
in coastal research that have been getting these exponential pushes, you know, like when you're playing Mario Kart and you get that speed boost just because of the type of technology that we're able to use now. So it's a very cool time to be using these technologies and then seeing what comes from the data that we collect. Yeah. Yeah. So then speaking of that, you've, you've flown your drone and, and sailed your little catamaran boat out there and you come back to your office in Madison. What are you looking at when you take the data off of those devices and, and how do you make sense of it? Yeah. So basically what we're looking at is a big long list of X, Y, and Z points. So locations and then elevations. And then what I do with that is I can make it into this kind of, um, it's not like a fabric, but you'll lay a mathematical formula over these different points to see what fits best to make that surface continuous. And so then we have, you know, because we have our lawnmower pattern, but there's data in between there that we want to be able to at least predict pretty well. And so then we use like a void filling method. And then what I do with that data is you can do just subtractions of different surveys. So you can say, okay, well, I went out on, you know, March 4th and then there was a storm and now I'm back out and I've got another survey and you can subtract those two to see how much sediment has been either moved in or how the bed forms have changed. But overall, my biggest tool is hydrodynamic modeling. So we do these really intense computer simulations of what the coast is doing. We input wave data and winds, and then we can get a prediction of what those wave conditions would cause. And what we're trying to do is see whether these models are actually good at predicting what we see in the Great Lakes. Um, a lot of them have been pretty extensively used on ocean coasts. And the environments are similar, the processes are similar, but they just haven't been tested for this environment. Cool. So then you're, let me just sort of like break this down to make sure that I'm, I'm getting it, is that you're, you're going out at multiple times to the same places and doing these surveys. And then you're having a computer help you see what's changed on those surfaces that you've measured. And then taking a, a computer model to see if what these models are predicting matches up with the reality that you've actually measured when you've gone back multiple times? Exactly. So, so you've, you've done all that, and then what, what sort of findings have you learned? Um, maybe first in a general sense, and then we can talk about like, you know, talking to a, let's say, imagine that we're talking to a homeowner on a bluff, but for just this, in general, like how are the models working? and and what are you finding? Yeah, so in general, we've tested them mostly on sandy beaches. And what we hope for, because of the model that we use, it's going to be most accurate during a stormy episode. So the models are best at predicting extreme behavior. I use a model called X Beach. So it's extreme beach behavior. And so the first, series of surveys that we did, we weren't able to capture a storm, but we decided to see if the model was able to predict the recovery period, these low level wave conditions that usually move sediment back onshore. And what we found was that this model really isn't appropriate for that. 
which is difficult because the prior beach condition is is a really big determinant of how it'll erode in the future. So if we don't know how it builds back up, it's hard to say how it erodes um, into the future. And these models aren't good for, let's say, long-term predictions of like what's going to happen in the next year or the next 10 years. They're really limited to, you know, a series of storm events. Um, so let's say we get a couple storms back to back, what might happen what would those conditions be like, the damages that we're seeing. We've also been able to apply it now. So that was my master's research. And then my next project was applying it to a data set where we did capture a storm. And we found that it is pretty good at predicting. It gives a really reasonable representation of what we see in the field. So you said that the, the model is sort of designed for ocean processes. Like what, what would a storm on... Lake Michigan look like compared to maybe a big extreme storm on the Outer Banks or something? Yeah, so um, when you're talking about ocean basins, you tend to get these really long, low amplitude waves. That's called swell. It's waves that have propagated from a distance. So there's these really long, low amplitude waves. And those are more common on ocean basins where you have a really big area for the wind to blow across. And those tend to carry a lot of energy in them. So you see a lot more of those long waves on ocean beaches versus Lake Michigan, where you don't have that distance for the wind to travel across. But the biggest difference is going to be the tidal influence. So Lake Michigan has does have tides. They're just very, very small. And so we don't typically think of them as being um, that impactful on the you know, final beach state. But on the ocean coast, if you have, you know, let's say a high tide and an extreme storm, you can get a lot of damage further up the coast than you might if the storm, same storm happened at low tide. So I guess that sounds pretty reassuring if you have a house on Lake Michigan, but we all have seen those pictures of the, you know, the backyards disappearing or the house that used to be a hundred feet inland now almost in the lake. So I guess let's, let's take this to talking to stakeholders in this, people who live on Lake Michigan or who, um, I don't know, visit there frequently or like to go swimming at some of these beaches. Like what is there? What have you learned that might be of interest to, to that person? Yeah, so um, with that, we still have to think about those long-term water level fluctuations. You know, it can be a period of seven or 10 years where the lake levels are significantly above average. And so that would act very similar to a high tide on the ocean coast. It's just for a longer duration. So storms that happen during those high lake level periods have the potential to do a lot of damage, you know, to undermining the bluffs, which causes this propagation of the failure backwards towards homes. And that's another area of research in our lab group is just exactly how are the bluffs eroding, what's causing them to erode. Um, and so I think the trouble is if you're a homeowner on Lake Michigan, they've changed some ordinances that determine how far you can build or how close to the lakeshore you can build. And those have changed over time as we've learned more about the different lake levels and processes that operate on the shoreline. Yeah, and so I guess like you're talking about these long-term lake level changes. And so I guess the, my, my mind goes to the, like, 
what what's causing those lake levels to change, I guess, is the first question. So we do, we as in collective humanity, we have ways to moderate lake levels in a, in a way. So we have outlets um, to the St. Lawrence and different dams that we can open or close, but those really don't affect water levels as much as people think. Um, and so like for the past couple of years when the lake levels were really high, we really had no recourse to keep those from impacting shoreline communities. What happens typically is there's a balance between evaporation and the amount of water that comes down from the sky or you know that condenses and falls into the lakes. And so it's all about how wet or dry that season is. And a big component of it is ice cover. So if you have ice cover over the lakes in winter, it prevents a lot of evaporation, a lot of loss of water versus these ice-free periods, we tend to see a lot more loss of water. As far, it just has to do with different, you know, global and regional atmospheric climate cycles. It's really complex and it's still um, a big topic of research to, to say exactly what conditions influence the Great Lakes in what way. But because it's such a big drainage basin, it's got such a big catchment area, it's really difficult to determine what's the one thing that's making lake levels high. Um, it's really a combination of processes that are all pretty, pretty natural and, and rhythmic. Yes, I guess that, thinking about it that way, if you have like Wisconsin is in a drought now, but that might not affect lake levels because a lot of our water is actually draining to the Mississippi rather than to the lakes. And there's so much other area that's feeding there that sort of the local conditions here aren't aren't the major factors that sound accurate? Yeah, so it's hard to extrapolate from, you know, locally, if I'm here in Port Washington, if we had a really rainy season, that doesn't necessarily mean that the entire Great Lakes Basin is experiencing a rainy season. Maybe up in Canada, it's very dry. And so we're seeing lower lake levels overall. And so is the, the I guess the big sort of question with any sort of ongoing process that involves the climate is that the climate is changing. And so I guess the first thought of with what you've been talking about is with the ice uh, cover is that I'd imagine there's probably less ice cover and that we keep hearing about there's more frequent and intense storms. And so how are those kind of things playing into your what you're what you've been studying? Because I study such short time periods, I haven't had the opportunity to look much at how these longer term climate cycles influence the Great Lakes specifically, but colloquially, what I've heard about lake cover, it has become more variable in the past you know, few decades. It's been a lot more unpredictable, a little sparser. For sure, with the storms becoming you know, more frequent, more having more storms that are outliers. I think that's the big thing in the Great Lakes region due to climate change is that these anomalous events become more common. And so we are seeing more extreme storms and those cause a lot of damage. The lake level fluctuations have been more rapid going from lows to highs. Again, I don't know that all of that is due to climate change because there's so much going into, you know, any global or regional system, but it absolutely it plays a part. 
Cool. But I was wondering if there's anything else you wanted to say or anything I didn't ask about that I should have. Hmm. Um, I feel like I wanted to make sure we touched on the long-term fluctuations because there's, you know, the thing with these cycles in the Great Lakes is I know a lot of locals who say I've lived here for 30 years and the lake has never been this high. And that's true that while you've lived here, it hasn't been that high, but it's on a decadal, multi-decadal, you know, kind of cycle. And so a lot of people do jump to say, well, it's climate change, the lakes are always gonna be high or it's climate change, the lakes are always gonna be low. And there still is a lot of variability in the system. So it's hard to say exactly what the lake levels are gonna do. The most likely answer is that the lake levels are going to keep changing. But just that residence time of memory is not that long in humans compared to these geological processes. And these are really short geological processes considering some of the things that you've talked about in previous episodes. I guess that's that's kind of an interesting way to think about it because you're, you're talking about a single storm. So you're studying a process that happens in a matter of hours versus, yeah, the sort of years to decades long cycle of lake level change versus the century long cycle of climate change versus, you know, <laughs> million year cycles of basin uh, getting carved out by ice. So there's a lot of different time scales that kind of all come down to that one storm that might take out your backyard. Yeah, that's it is tricky. And so it's hard, you know, when homeowners say like, well, what should we do? It is hard to say because the bluffs were made to erode. I mean, not specifically, but that that is what by nature they do. So it's hard to balance some of these natural processes that are going on in terms of what's best for humans. You know, we have a different agenda than let's say the bluffs do and the lakes. Awesome. So I guess that brings up one more question that is kind of interesting is like, so in the course of your research and then what you do with it, how, how often do you end up interacting with landowners or like, do you have anything that you do that, that brings you into those conversations? So brings you out of like, I guess the, the pure science of it. Yeah. So a couple of years ago when I was an undergrad and I was helping another grad student from Madison, my job was to go up the Wisconsin coastline from Ozaki County to Kiwani County knock on every door of a property owner who has lakeshore land and ask if we could fly the drone on it. And there were some really interesting conversations that came out of that. I mean, I don't think I've ever had the chance to talk to so many people about a specific process that's affecting, you know, a whole shoreline. And so it's really interesting just to see again, those different perspectives, like, well, I've lived here 30 years. I've never seen anything like this. And, and I, you know, agree. And it's, it is makes it more important for me to do the research when I have those conversations with people. Thanks so much to Chelsea for being part of Under Our Feet and for being a big supporter since the very first episode. One point that I thought was really interesting was when she told us that bluffs were made to erode, that it's what they do by nature, and that it's hard to predict some of these natural processes that are going on. In terms of what's best for humans, you know, we have a different agenda than, let's say, the bluffs do and the lakes. 
That's a key point to understand when we think about our relationship to the Earth system processes. The planet doesn't exist for our purposes. We're just a tiny part of a history stretching back billions of years. The more we understand that, the better we can work to live with the land and not just on it, and to become stewards of the processes that we can influence and become resilient to the processes that we cannot, instead of trying to mold everything to our whims. Remember, you can always support the show by leaving a quick rating or a review, or just by telling a friend. Or check out our website at uofpod.org. There you can find my contact information, or if you're feeling really nice, a link to our page on Patreon, where a small monthly subscription can help me make this show and give you cool benefits like bumper stickers, shoutouts, t-shirts, and more. Check it out at uofpod.org. And make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss the next episode, which is going to be about Wisconsin's beloved lakes.